go. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. We are glad that you are with us today. And if it's your first Sunday with us, we don't take lightly that you've chosen to be with us. And you're probably like, what in the world is this all about? Well, we are in a series entitled uh, Memento More. And you can go to our website and sort of catch up on the past messages, which I would strongly encourage that you do. We have been on a journey to set up sort of where we are at today in this series. And there's a number of factors why we're doing this. This is in the church calendar, the season of Lent, where Christians for thousands of years have prepared for Easter. And the way that they have prepared for Easter and the resurrection is to pause and stop and remember our own mortality and to remember death. And, and we really said this the first week that Jesus is not a solution if death is not a problem. And I think oftentimes we forget that, hence the series. And what does the phrase memento more even mean? We learned that it comes from the Latin translations of our Bible, and it has been shortened through history to mean remember your death. And we said the goal of this series is that by remembering our death, that we would renew our life. That's really the goal, that when we remember our mortality and that time is short, that it would affect how we live each and every day today. We said the first week that when you remember your mortality, that your priority list tends to change. And nobody on their deathbed said, I really wish I did that extra load of laundry, right? We said that it changes the way that we live. Last week we looked at when the Bible mentions death, it talks about three types of death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. Again, we would love for you to go catch up on our website on that. But this week, um, doing a little bit of research, that if you type a certain question into Google you get 2,640,000,000 results. If you type the question in on Amazon, you get a 1,000 book recommendations. 
And I really think uh, the reason why, besides the weight of the question, there's one man that we can really thank when it comes to the amount of books and TV shows, and that's by the man, a man by the name of Raymond Moody, who was a physician with doctorates in philosophy and psychology. He is actually the man who has coined the phrase near-death experiences. And so he did psychological and scientific studies on some 2,000 patients who said that they had claimed a near-death experience and published those findings in a book entitled Life After Life. And man, even if you go into a Christian bookstore, if you go into Amazon, there's movies, there's all types of things when it comes to this fundamental question. And what we've said is, is that each week surrounding the topic of death, we are asking a fundamental question and then turning to the scriptures to see what the Bible says about that. And this week is probably the most predominant question. Last week we looked at where does death come from? And we learned that death came from disobedience to God's good word. That now everything in creation has an expiration date. That everything is tainted due to the fracture of the decay of sin. And this week, our fundamental question is this. What happens after we die? What happens after we die? It is by far one of the most fundamental questions. Me being a pastor, um, spending time with people who were on the edge of eternity and looking in to what is next. The question oftentimes is, what begins to happen when I close my eyes and I leave this earth? I think this question hits home not for just us as individuals who want to know Um, Is there life after death? What happens? What does this look like? But also because of the loved ones that we have who have gone before us. We said that um, a few weeks ago that the idea of death is actually universal. And what I mean by that is every people group on the planet have some sort of story or solution to death's origin or the answer to this question. Because death is universal. It's real, it's inevitable, and it's universal. But there is a number of answers that people try to claim to what happens after we die. A couple of them are this, the first one, um, naturalism, which is the teaching that basically nothing happens when you die. That um, you go into the ground and you essentially become fertilizer and that's pretty much it. Um, The problem with that, and and I would propose to you, is this, um, then, then what is the point of life? Why, why then should we live a certain way? What is the basis for morality? Why should we live a certain way, do things, not do things, uh, for the advancement of human society, or any of those things? Um, if, if you ascribe to that, you would need to be able to answer that question. Um, a second popular opinion is this, universalism which is a teaching that at some point all people will eventually spend eternity with God in some way, shape, or form. I would venture to say that this is probably the original lie that the enemy told Adam and Eve in the garden. Because the enemy comes along and says, did God really say that if you eat of this tree, and and we walked through this last week, that you would die. And then the enemy says this, you will not surely die. And any cursory reading of the New Testament and the rest of Scripture would show that that is not how this thing ends. Um, A third popular opinion um, really ascribed by Disney, and it's okay, just calm down, it's all right, all right? We don't talk about Bruno, I get it, okay, all right? Um, Reincarnation, which is... When you um, die in this life, you come back in different forms and then eventually you work your way up to a good enough life that then you can spend eternity in paradise, which is by its very definition a works-based salvation. 
that if you live good enough, long enough, that many times, then you can work your way up. But the problem with that is, is what is the standard? And what is good enough? And again, a cursory reading of the scriptures would show that to be false. Another popular answer to that would be purgatory. Um, that if you die, then you go to a holding place and then maybe your loved ones can pray for you and you can work your way in some way, shape, or form and then end up in eternity. Um, this was made very popular by the Roman Catholic Church, but I would just describe to you um, the teachings of Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation. Scripture nowhere mentions purgatory. And he was a man who was actually immersed in that teaching and then through his study and conviction of Scripture came to a different conviction in that. And then another popular one would be um, annihilationism, which is actually um, ascribed by some very famous teachers, by guys by the name of C.S. Lewis and these types of guys, which basically in the end God does away with all evil and any of those who have had judgment upon their life. Um, the problem again, I would disagree that the scriptures don't teach something along those lines. And then lastly, something that's made popular, which is called soul sleep which is basically um, when you die, your consciousness um, is paused, nothing really happens, you're not conscious until the day of the resurrection of the body when Jesus returns. Um, but again, I don't think the scriptures teach to that. And, and, and listen, can I just say from the forefront today that my job is, is to be very clear today, okay? to be very clear as to what the scriptures teach. Please, it would be a massive failure if you leave here today and say, Jason said. That's a fail, okay? That is a massive fail. We will have our Bible open, and we will be searching and looking at the scriptures as to what they say and how the scriptures answer this question. But here's something that's funny that many of us probably don't understand. I don't know if it's, if it's Hollywood or if it's Hallmark sort of Christian books have, have hijacked the church's theology, but when it comes to the exact moment of when your heart stops beating, there's no more breath in your lungs and neurons are not firing in your brain, as to what happens exactly in that moment... There's a little bit of ambiguity in the scriptures. Now, the scriptures speak very heavily about the final resurrection and the new heaven and the new earth. And listen, we're going to get into all of that in this series. But we're answering, answering a very specific question today, which is the moment after death, what takes place? Um, one theologian puts it this way. However abundant the scriptural data might be regarding the resurrection of believers and the life in heaven, the state of the soul between death and resurrection is rarely referred to in the Bible. Okay, so you need to know that up front. Oftentimes we're like, I'm, I'm a Bible person, brother. Amen, we love the Bible. And then you read the Bible and you're like, oh, that's what? You know, it's like, that's heavy. What does that mean? And so today what I want to do is, this is actually, when I was preparing this message, quickly sort of became a two-part message. And, and here's what I mean by that. We're going to be in this passage in Luke this Sunday and next Sunday because it is by far one of the most interesting and heavy parables that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ ever told. By the way, all of the words that were read to you today in some of your Bibles are in red. That means that Jesus said these things. And there's a very popular notion to try to make Jesus into something that he is not. 
whether it be Jesus is my homeboy or this white Jesus with like feathered blonde hair who looks like a lost member of the Beach Boys or something like that, okay? Um, The words torment, fire, those came from Jesus' lips. And so in this parable, what I want to do today is this. I don't want to get down into the weeds. We're going to do that next week. But what I want to do is I just want to fly over this parable. And what we see, I think, are sort of three key principles that can help us piece together the ambiguity of what happens to our soul when we die. When you look at the parable, what Jesus is doing is he's comparing and contrasting. Please have your eyes on Scripture He says that there's basically two men. One is a rich man who is not named. And then there's a poor man who actually has a name, Lazarus. Now, what is so interesting about that is in all, this is huge. In every one of Jesus's parables that he tells. And by the way, this is the primary way that Jesus teaches He teaches in a story sort of format. So the disciples are like, oh man, tell us about the kingdom of God. And he's like, you want to know about the kingdom of God? And they're like, yeah, we do. And he's like, do you? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, okay, Um, there's a farmer and he's got some seed and he's throwing it out and it grows slowly, but surely the kingdom of God is like that. And the disciples are like, what? I thought he was going to be like, you know, a sword or lion. Or, but he teaches in the common language of the people and he tells stories. And he never names anybody until Luke chapter 16. Why does Jesus give the poor man a name? Um, I read pages and pages and pages this week. And I can dumb it down for you and save you a lot of money and time. And it's this. We don't know. We don't know. Though some scholars think that this is a bit more than a parable. Um, Yes, it is a story, but it's a story that explains something that is very true. That is very true. So there's a rich man and there's a poor man, and the rich man is living high on the hog, as we say in southeast Missouri, okay? Um, He's clothed in purple, Which, like, you got to understand something. Back then, there wasn't different, a ton of different colors um, in clothing. You had sort of one color, which was of the fabric that was made. Then if there was a wedding or something like that, you would take your clothing to a baptizer. That's where we get the word from. And that baptizer would dunk or baptize your clothing in dye to change the color for either a funeral or a wedding or something like that. The color purple, oh man. I mean, that's like Louis Vuitton, that's Balenciaga, that is balling status, okay? Because you had to get this snail that had this shell, and you had to scrape out the inside of the shell, and you had to have hundreds upon hundreds of those. to then. So listen, what Jesus is saying, when the, when the crowd would have heard that he was wearing purple, they almost would have gasped, okay? So can we do that today? Can we have fun in church? God forbid we have fun in church, all right? So I'm going to read that he was wearing wearing purple and you're going to gasp. Here we go. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple. That's incredible, right? But listen, listen, not just clothed in purple and fine linen. Oh, you're, see, this is great. You're in this, right? So would you know what fine linen is? That means this dude's underwear was named brand. Okay. I mean, like, he's not just wearing, like, a custom-made suit. His whitey tidies are name brand, all right? So it's fine. Was that TMI? I'm so sorry, okay? Fine linen who feasted sumptuously. What is that? We, that's probably the first time you've ever heard that word. Be honest, okay? Sumptuously. And that word in the original language just means extravagantly. And it says this, that he feasted sumptuously, Every day. So you got to understand something. Back then, meat was like a big deal. And so if you got a steak or something like that, I mean, whoa, this is big time. And you only had that probably a couple times in your life. And not just that, but then as it says in verse 20, 
and at his gate. So now this man has a house that has a private entrance and a gate. Do you see the story and how Jesus is building up this rich man? By all means, this man would have been of high social status. Some scholars even think that this man would have been considered some of the religious elite. And we'll get in next week because Jesus is actually talking to the Pharisees. And the parable primarily is about money and how you steward your money. But what happens to our soul after our death is also implicated in the parable. So there's the rich man. And then at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. So he's poor. And then he is covered with sores, which has multiple implications. So if he had some sort of skin disease... He would have to stay away from public gatherings and people. And if he entered into the marketplace, he would have to cover himself with cloth and yell, unclean, unclean, everywhere he went. And people would literally scatter at his presence. Think about how miserable that man's life is. One scholar said this, Imagine, it's hard to imagine the last time Lazarus was embraced or even touched by another human being. I mean, think about that. We just went through all of the COVID chaos and the, you know, the distancing. And, not, and man, it affected us in a very real way. We realized, oh, we're not just robots. We are human beings. So this man is living a very tortured life. He's covered with sores. Here it is. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So back then, to show that you were really balling, like big time, you didn't even finish your food. So you would eat and leave food on your plate, but nobody else was allowed to eat that food. So out the back door of the house, some of your grandparents had the scrap pile, right, where the chickens and the goats and everybody. Funny how even a dog doesn't eat an onion, Okay, I'm just going to leave that to some of you onion eaters in here, okay, right? But there's that scrap pile, and you would throw that food out there. And what the rich man, or what the poor man is saying is, I would even eat out of that pile if I could. What fell from the rich man's table, here it is, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is graphic you got to understand something about over in the Middle East. If you've ever um, taken a tour, if you've been to India, or if you've been to the Middle East, dogs run rampant everywhere. They're unclean, all of that. And what Jesus is showing is uncleanliness. This man is ostracized. There's one man who represents what everybody thinks is purity and all of this. But here's the common denominator. Here it is. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through, and again, just from a 30,000-foot view, I think there's some principles and precepts that we can pull from this passage that will answer the question, what happens to us after we die? Again, if we are Bible people, we have to live in the tension of the Scriptures, okay? So there is some ambiguity in the, in the parable because I can't make this parable say what Jesus didn't intend for it to say. And can I just be full disclosure and honest with you? Um, I grew up in the church, okay? My dad was a pastor and an evangelist for a number of years. And so he would travel around and speak all across the country. And oftentimes he would be a speaker at a revival. And um, a revival is, you know, a church plans it and it's going to be like a shot in the arm and we're going to get excited. Lost people are going to come to faith. And really, I'm just being honest with you, okay? What it ends up becoming is a massive guilt trip for everybody that attends, okay? It's like, you don't love God enough. You could love God more. And and it's always fire and brimstone. That phrase, fire and brimstone, comes from this passage and always 
there was a preacher who would use this passage, and I'm not kidding, scare the living daylights out of me, man. I'm talking not being able to go to bed or anything like that. But the reality is, is Jesus is using heavy language. But I think Jesus is showing us something even more massive than what we would consider a hellfire and brimstone. So what happens to us after we die? I think the heading can be this, the description about life after death, okay? The first one is this. The body expires and is buried. We see that. That is the common denominator. Um, Jesus is comparing and contrasting, okay? So he's showing us the difference in their lives. But the common denominator in their lives is what I want to look at. And the first one is, is both of them die... And one of them is buried, the rich man. Now, what we know about the poor man is back then in Jesus' day, if you were poor or a beggar or something like that and you died, your body was just put in a pile, basically, outside of the city. There was no formal burial or anything like that. In order to be buried back then, you had to have a lot of money for that. Now, what I also want to show you is where the Bible supports this in the rest of Scripture. Please listen to me. I'm trying to teach you something today, and I want to show you that the best way to study Scripture is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So if you come across something and go, huh, I've never seen that before, we need to look in the rest of the Bible to see where that is. And Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, references this in chapter 12, verse 7. And the dust, which is an analogy for our body because we were made from the dust of the ground, and the dust returns to earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Listen, that's a big verse. You need to write that down, underline that in your Bible. That gives us a little bit of glimpse into answering this question as to what happens to us. Now, we talked about this idea of the spirit and the soul, that um, immaterial part of you that makes you you. It's immortal. It lives on forever. Well, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but, but we know this. The body expires, and then it is buried. The second thing that we see is this. The soul, or the spirit, lives on after death. Now, in the parable, in verse 22, it's interesting. It says the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Hold on a second. I thought the verse said that he died. He did die. So then who or what is getting carried by angels to Abraham's side? That is what the Bible is referencing when it comes to our soul. We just saw that there in Ecclesiastes. And so there is a monumental passage in the book of 2 Corinthians that verifies this. The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians who have asked him a question. And actually the question is, what, what, what happens to our loved ones? When we bury them, what's going on and what happens? The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. So we are always of good courage. Man, you know what? This is free. This ain't even in my notes, but that's a word for some of y'all today. Some of y'all are not of good courage. Look like you were baptized in lemon juice, okay? All right? So just be of good courage, all right? Because the Bible says so. We are always of good courage. We know. And I have to pause here. Um. We define anxiety at Westside as this. West, or, or anxiety lives in the world of what if. Anxiety takes a future possibility and makes it a present reality. And then it cripples you in the moment. And it hangs and it lives on what if. And then that spirals out of control. I mean, it's almost like a cycle of what if this, what if that. That's what keeps us up at night, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, what if this, what if this. 
And we said, the way that you beat anxiety is this. I know always beats what if. I know always beats what if. Listen, that's why we live on the promises of God. That's why we just pray to prayer. God, give us this day our daily bread. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true and is a shelter and refuge for those who trust in Him. Listen, we don't have anything else in this life but the very word of God. That's what we have. So I know always beats what if. And that's what Paul's telling them. They're anxious. What happens to us after we die? What if, what if, what if? We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight Yes, we are of good courage. There it is again, right? We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I memorized this in the old King Jimmy, the King James, which is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we see that. We see that our body expires, is buried, but our soul It lives on, and that little window and insight that the angels carried him away. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in heaven, but did you know that I learned that truth? And there's a lot of other evidence to support it through the rest of Scripture. That is, when God says that the death of a saint is precious in his sight, That literally when you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you expire from this life, that literally a host of heavenly angels usher you into the presence of God. That is good news. That is good news. But it lives on. But what takes place? Which is the third point. That everyone gives an account for their life. We see this. Now again, this is a cursory reading of the parable. These are very basic, common denominators of what happens to both of the men in the story. They die. They are buried. Their soul lives on after death. And then, if you drop down and look in verse 25, but Abraham said, child... Remember that you are in this lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Listen, what Jesus is saying is this what you do with your life now affects eternity. That's the key principle. That's the point. And I would venture to say this, that the point that Jesus stresses even more is that after you expire in this life, it is now irrevocable that the man asks and says, can there be a second shot or something at this? And Abraham says, no. So we see three key principles as to what happens to us when we expire from this life, that that our body expires, we're buried, our soul lives on, and then we give an account. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 would say this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, when we hear that word judgment, it does not sound like good news. But I'll get to that in just a minute. One of the things that I constantly want to teach you as your pastor is that when we come to doctrines like this, it is very important for us not to just study Scripture, which is the number one thing. That's where we get our doctrine from. 
But in 2 Peter, it says that um, Scripture is not for private interpretation. And here's what Peter means. You don't just lock yourself away with your Bible and come up with all of this stuff that you now believe, and then you tell everybody to go buy Nikes to come to your house. You're going to serve Kool-Aid later on this afternoon. That's how cults happen, okay? So what we have to do is we also have to look at what church history or the church as a whole has believed about a particular doctrine. These are what we call close-handed issues of the faith. One of those things is what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is a beautiful historical document that was put together in 1646. And it was actually used to train and teach little children in a question-and-answer form. So the parents would ask a question, and the kids would memorize the answer. But when it comes to this, I don't want to come up with something that church history already shows us. And in chapter 31, or chapter 32, it says this, "...of the state of men after death and of the resurrection." The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies." And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. I can't get any clearer than that. And, and just to show you kind of of this graphic um, to, to help make sense as to what I've just told you is this. That you live a life and your body expires. And when your body expires, you are put into the ground, but your soul goes back to God, just as we have discussed. When that happens there, the paradise is for believers. And we'll get into what is Abraham's side, what are those things. And then the word that Jesus uses is Hades for the unbeliever. And you see all of those descriptions for what Hades is, which we will discuss. But I need to do something. This week as I was writing the sermon and I got to this very point, I got so burdened and I couldn't shake it. I, it was almost like a writer's block. And I, and I literally put on my headphones and I walked around the neighborhood and was just listening to some worship music and praying. And I realized what was taking place in my heart and in my mind. And I, and I think this story will represent that. This is a picture of Francis Schaeffer and his wife. Francis Schaeffer was a profound theologian and preacher and an evangelist. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, when the hippie movements and all of that was taking place in universities, um, Francis Schaeffer would go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. He would go to those universities and debate those college students, and he loved Jesus, and he pastored for a number of years. Francis became very disillusioned with the church when he saw how the church was responding to Vietnam and all types of things, uh, the race and, and everything. And what Francis Schaeffer did is he almost left the ministry. He almost quit. I mean, he wrestled day in and day out. He was so disillusioned. But what he did is him and his wife moved to Switzerland to what they called Le Brie. They bought a house there. Le Brie um, literally means shelter or a safe place. And what Francis Schaeffer did is he offered any college student, any pastor, any Christian who was weary in their soul from what they were seeing in the church and had a restlessness about them to come stay with them at Labrie and just find a Sabbath rest for their soul and discuss things. There's a story told one night 
there were a group of young college students who were really boisterous in their theology and really thought they had it all figured out. And they were discussing and debating predestination and eternity and hell and is it a literal hell and the flame and all of these things and they were going at it and the discussion became extremely intense. And then finally one college student said, Francis, what do you think? And they all turned and they looked at the edge of the table. And Francis Schaefer had his head bowed. And when he raised up his head, he had big tears flowing down his cheeks. And he was weeping. Why was Francis Schaefer weeping? Because these students were debating doctrine. And Francis Schaefer knew that they were actually discussing, discussing eternal destinies of real people. You see, when I was writing this sermon, I became so convicted that I was just giving you information, like it was a Bible study. And you were going to take your little notes and have your little outline and then go eat Mexican after this like nothing changed. When in reality, we aren't just discussing Doctrine. We're discussing eternal destinies. And listen, not somebody else's, yours and mine. What's the thrust in this? What, what is Jesus really saying in this parable? Well, I think it's this I think death is certain. Death is certain. But your eternal destination is a choice. You have a choice. What Jesus is saying in this parable is to waken our attention and our spirits as to what this life is all about. And listen, the good news is this as we close. Listen, I just want to bring, I don't think we can go any further today than this for us to really understand what we are discussing. And when I say that eternal destiny is a choice, what I mean is this. Here's the good news. When we see that the rich man died and gave an account for his life and that he faced judgment, we believe in Christianity that there is good news, and it's this. That Jesus Christ is what's known as our substitution. That Jesus lived a perfect life that you could not live in your place. But Jesus really died. Why did Jesus die? He lived a perfect life. He didn't deserve death. The Bible would say that He died in our place for our sins. As a substitution. Do you know what the good news of the gospel is? You can sum it up in these few words. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. And it says there on the cross that Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, in that moment when Jesus died on the cross, I can't explain it. It's a divine mystery. But there was, as one theologian calls, a tremor in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit coexisting, co-eternal, co-equal for all eternity, never separated. But in that moment, the Father placed the sin on the Son. And in that moment, the Father turns His back so He could embrace us. You see, Jesus absorbed the blow. Jesus bridges the gap. So now, how do we respond to that? What do we do now with this information that you've heard that there is a God who's created the cosmos, that there is a God and He's created you on purpose and with a purpose? How do we respond to this? The book of Romans very simply tells us that in Romans chapter 10, it tells us this beautiful news if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you know what's so significant about this? 
that back then under the Roman rule and government, in order for you to trade and sell goods or pay your taxes in the marketplace, you had to say, Caesar is Christos. Caesar is Lord. And when you would say that, then you would have the protection of the Roman government. But oh, Paul is saying, we don't confess in a government. We don't confess in a Caesar. We confess the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. And when you confess that and believe in your heart, God saves you. For with the heart one believes and is justified, made right with God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then here it is. This is so good. For the scripture says, everyone, everyone who believes in, in him will not be put to shame. Listen, I come bearing good news today and it's this. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you come from. I don't give a rip what your last name is or how rich your granddaddy was. You will die. And you will give an account for your life. And no matter how far you think you've wandered from God, no matter how many people you've slept with, no matter what you have done in your life, there is a God named Jesus Christ who right now beckons you to come home. That He's there with open arms with an unconditional love that you've been trying to fill the void every day of your life. That's why as soon as you sleep with them or as soon as you do the thing that you think will fulfill you, you feel nothing but guilt and shame because it'll never fill because you desire the love of the Father and you only come to the Father with open hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. So what does this look like? Well, the scripture is very clear. The first thing is this, is that you confess that you are that sinner and you accept the responsibility of your sin. Listen, this is where the rubber meets the road. There's no more excuses. I understand that you were dealt a hand of cards filled with pain and suffering. And I understand the heartache that you've gone through in your life. But at the end of the day, we all know within our conscience, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what we do is we take responsibility for our sin. And we say, it is I. It is I who you speak of. And then the second thing that we do is this, we accept the responsibility and then this, we turn from our sin. The Bible uses the word repentance, which is a change of mind. But here's what most Christians do. They turn from their sin by laying it down and that's it. And then you live in this pattern. Sin, confess, pick it up. 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 Because that's only a half truth. You turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus Christ. You lay down the sin and you embrace Jesus by faith. And what is faith? Faith is stepping out in obedience, not knowing what is on the other side. But when you step out in that faith, always the answer is on the other side. And what does that look like? The Bible is very clear. It says that through baptism, we repent and confess. There's all a number of things. But at the end of the day, the question is this. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? That's it. That's the common denominator. So Westside, I would have you stand to your feet right where you're at today. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, just for a moment, God, God, just for a moment, could you drop eternity in our hearts in this place? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I know that in a room this size with this many people, that there is at least one person who says, Jason, I haven't done that, Pastor. I, I've known, I've grown up in Popper Bluff, all the churches, all the, I've known all of that, but I have been gripping onto something my entire life. 
and I've always tried to kind of get Jesus' hand, but I'm still holding on to that, and I'm exhausted, I'm miserable, I'm filled with anxiety, and I live with what if every day of my life. And if you were to ask me today that if I were to die, what my destiny would be, I don't know how to answer it. What I'm going to do is I just want to pray. And you can repeat the words just to yourself. Listen, these words are not magic. It's not a prayer that saves you. It's a person that saves you. What this prayer does is it just guides your emotions in this moment. There's nothing special about this. You don't have to say them exactly like me. But it's very simply this. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me a sinner. I give you my life. I give you my sin. And I trust that you and you alone are my only salvation. God, please save me today. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, just so you know that you're not alone. If you prayed that for the first time, would you just raise your hand right where you're at so I can see you and know you? Yes, amen, yes, amen. Thank you, God. Yes, I see you. Yes, for all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and comes home. That all of heaven celebrates. Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful that salvation has come into this place that people have crossed over from death to life and that now eternal life starts God thank you for your word thank you Holy Spirit for the new birth that we know that what takes place in this room when somebody cries out with their mouth is the greatest miracle the world has ever known and it's that God takes broken pieces and makes masterpieces out of them. God, today do something new. For those who raise their hand, God, change their life from this day forward. May they step out in faith in the act of obedience, beginning to read their scriptures, beginning to live in community. New life has come into this place today. God, that's why we do what we do. God, I needed this today. God, I needed to know that the old gospel still saves. God, that our labor is not in vain. For what we do, you see, and there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. For the grave is empty, and the throne is occupied. Glory, hallelujah, praise be to God. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the eternal and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.